Good morning. Hello, everyone. I'm Christopher Preble, and I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute and a co-chair with my colleagues Jim Harper and Benjamin Friedman of Cato's Strategic Counterterrorism Initiative, which is made possible by the generosity of the Atlantic Philanthropies with additional support from the Open Society Institute. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome all of you, all of you, those of you here in the auditorium, congratulations on uh, your coveted seat. Those of you in the auditorium foyer are waiting in the wings if anyone uh, is to uh, give up any seats in the auditorium. Can I get a high sign from our friends in the first floor conference room and upstairs? I think we have people in the parking garage, actually, at this point. <laughs> so uh, those of you who are watching this event on the Internet, you don't know what you're missing, okay? Um, seriously, it's gratifying, to say the least, by the, just the enormous uh, response that we have had to this program. We've obviously been planning it for many months, and it's so wonderful to see it all come together. Uh, and it is a tribute to the ter terrific speakers we have on this program for two days. And uh, I thank you all for attending. While I'm in the business of thanking people, I, I want to thank, I always thank our conference staff who do so much here at Cato, but I want to put a special word of thanks. They always work so hard, but, you know, planning an event that just happens to fall the week after uh, New Year's and before that Christmas means that an awful lot of folks have been working uh, nights and weekends and on their own free time. I also really want to spend, extend special thanks to my colleague, Brandy Dunn, who has worked tirelessly for the last few weeks, really months, uh, helping to pull this all together. Um, I mentioned the blogger's bullpen. We do have a few folks uh, holed up upstairs. And if you are watching online, if you're a blogger uh, or updating on Twitter, there is a conversation going on live uh, about the conference using the hashtag CT09. That's pound sign 09. Uh, we do have wireless access available for those of you who are attending today, and we hope that you will join in that conversation. Um, for those of you here in the physical realm, uh, just indulge me a few uh, ground rules that I think will help make the next two days go smoothly. Um, the first rule this is going to sound like all the things you learned in kindergarten, you know, can get you through life. It, it, this applies. Be polite. Uh, that means that if there's an empty seat next to you, there shouldn't be, uh, especially if you're in the auditorium. Uh, fill in the space. Don't save seats for people who aren't here. People will be coming and going during the course of the day. Uh, please try to be considerate of your uh, fellow attendees and the presenters. Um, be smart. We do have scheduled breaks today. A colleague, a friend of mine who, who runs these events, he always tells me, I have no breaks. People are locked in the room from beginning to end. Well, I, I don't do that. I allow you some breaks. But if you don't need to take a break, a word of advice, don't take them, because I understand these seats are selling on eBay, and I don't know what the price is right now. Um, be patient. Okay, be patient. Uh, we have had a tremendous turnout today. It's, it, again, is so gratifying. And if we all cooperate, it will be just a tremendous success. I'm sure it will be. Thank you in advance. Um, a word about that. For those of you who are attending tomorrow's event, please hold on to your name tags. That's your ticket in tomorrow as well. This is, again, a very coveted uh, just to get in the door. So please hold on to those name tags. We did not print them out for both days. Um, and finally, as a courtesy to, to our speakers and to your uh, fellow attendees, please silence your phones so that we can uh, move forward uninterrupted. Uh, with those notes out of the way, let me – this is my, in my role from, from one of the chairs of this project to the chair and moderator of the very first panel of the first day. Uh, I just want to uh, acknowledge and welcome – uh, the, the folks who are up here on the stage. First of all, my colleague and friend Jim Harper, who's Cato's, Cato's Director of Information Policy Studies. Michael German, who's Policy Counsel at the ACLU. 
Robert Hutchings, diplomat in resident at Princeton University, and Patty Hilliard, professor of sociology at Queen's University, Belfast. I will not uh, read their full bios, which, are, which I encourage you all to do. They are in your packet of materials that was handed out. And for again, for any of you watching online, all of their bios are available, and I encourage you to look them over. It is a, a very distinguished panel. And, and, and a panel with some divergent points of view, and I think this is the thing that I want to stress right at the outset. The title of this panel is How Overreaction and Misdirection Play into the Terrorism Strategy. This is a theme you're going to hear over the course of the next two days. It's also related to a discussion that is going on online right now on Cato Unbound, a lead essay by Bill Burns, who's here with us today, and by John Mueller and Bernard Fennell and Camille Pecastang, a online discussion at Cato Unbound about communication strategies, about how... Uh, talking about terrorism in a sensible way uh, is part of a terrorism, overarching terrorism strategy. And that's one of the discussions we're going to have, we really lead off today. But I want to stress, this conference is not going to produce a consensus document or a consensus report. We are going to have differences of opinion. You're going to see them right here on this panel. And I, as moderator, I'm going to do the best I can to really get this conversation started in a lively way. The basic question is, what are terrorism, terrorists trying to induce? What kind of reactions are they trying to evoke? And can we counter that by thinking strategically and by acting in a, uh, a disciplined and rational way? And that's, that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, each of our speakers today... Uh, we'll, we'll speak for about uh, 10, or, 10 or 12 minutes, and then we will have plenty of time for audience Q&A. So without any further ado, please welcome my colleague Jim Harper. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Chris. And <clears throat> as you've all heard now, uh, Chris is, is a fantastic organizer of events like this. These And, and um, he, may, he may not say the same of me, but he has been a joy to work with in putting this in this conference together. Uh, he and Ben Friedman really have brought uh, an incredible array of intellectual firepower uh, to, to discuss these issues with you at this event. First, unfortunately, though, you have to hear from me. I know I'm going to learn a lot over the next two days, and so I'm a little trepidatious about speaking first and, and, and raising these issues. I expect I'll, I'll raise some disagreements from my co-panelists, from you all during the Q&A, and of course through, through, throughout the rest of the two days. But I can take that criticism, and, and a conversation has to start somewhere. So, so let me begin. I guess I, I, guess I think about my, my talk in this way. Uh, I want to I articulate what I might call a general theory of terrorism. And I want to do it in a way that's accessible to the public. I think that the, the American public has to have a sense of understanding about terrorism if it's going to, to regain a sense of power and a sense of confidence. So we need an explanation for terrorism that's simple enough for the American public to understand and and perhaps, if we're lucky, even for politicians in the media. In my opinion, the best theory of terrorism is that it represents a dual threat. That is, it puts the victim state at risk of direct attacks. That's rather obvious. But it also puts the victim state at risk of overreaction and misdirection in response. That's a little more subtle. Overreaction and misdirection multiply the costs of terrorist acts, and that obviously increases the effectiveness of terrorism, and the attractiveness of terrorism as a tool. Not too long ago, a reporter cited to me the costs of the 911 attacks at being in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And it occurred to me that that reporter had never separated out the costs of the attacks directly and the costs that we incurred in spending afterwards. 
Uh, we, we spent hundreds of billions of dollars in reaction to the attacks, though a loose, a loose estimate of the actual direct cost of the attacks may be around $10 billion. Um, that's not to say that hundreds of billions of dollars in expenditures were wrong, uh, and it's certainly not to try to, to diminish the, the importance of the lives lost during, at 9-1-1, but it is to point out that the spending we, take, we uh, take on in response to terrorism is within our control. It was then and it is now. It's, it's going to take a lot of study, I, I, of, of course, to determine what security spending is appropriate, what, what security actions are appropriate. And on that, of course, I'll, I'll recommend uh, the panel tomorrow morning on risk management and cost-benefit benefit analysis and the afternoon panels today on terrorist groups and terrorist capabilities. Now, a moment ago, I, I talked about the effectiveness of terrorism. What the heck is that? Well, that depends, I think, on what terrorists want. Our next panel this morning, of course, is on that subject, and the, and the panelists uh, are doing great work to unpack what terrorists want. And I think we've, uh, generally speaking, in the United States, relied on assumption a lot more than we should. And the study that's being done of what terrorists actually seek is very important. To summarize, oversimplify, and, and invite criticism from the, from the panel that follows us, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that some terrorists appear to have geopolitical aims, some, some quite ridiculous, in fact, um, some have grievances that they want to avenge, and some uh, appear to be just alienated people who are trying to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Well, we want to behave in ways that don't gratify any of those terrorists. So while we take every effort to pressure terrorist cells, to interdict terrorists, we want to ov avoid the overreaction and misdirection that g make gifts to, to each of these types of terrorists. So since 9-1-1, something has obviously gone right. Something has obviously gone right, and the proof is in the pudding. That is the fact that we haven't uh, suffered successive attacks. Um, that being said, we don't have a good sense of what has worked for us, what has given us this good fortune. So it's impossible to endorse any particular program or activity. That's all a matter of study uh, on panels uh, at this conference and into the future. We want to pressure terrorists everywhere they are, but we want to do so in just the right degree. If we go too far we end up giving them rewards, and that's a key point. We end up giving them re rewards if we overreact or misdirect our responses. So let me turn now to a, a sort of taxonomy of the rewards we give terrorism. I said I wanted this to be a publicly accessible theory, and now I've said the word taxonomy, so um, I'm contradicting myself in some degree. But I think you can categorize the forms of overreaction. We can begin to analyze them, understand them, so that we can avoid them in the future. And the first, I think, most, uh, and most obvious, of course, is waste of blood and treasure. Uh, terrorists with geopolitical aims, with grievances, if we react to them by wasting our own blood and treasure, we are doing their work for them. We're weakening ourselves, and we're raising the costs of our own policies. We'll have a panel, obviously, tomorrow on the role of military force in counterterrorism. But I think it's, it's, it's important and, and perhaps slightly obvious that the waste of blood and treasure is poor counterterrorism. More subtle, though, is, is the notion that overreaction can give sympathy and recruiting gains to terrorists and terrorist groups. I, I was just, uh, I found it quite remarkable when I read the work of Patty Hilliard and saw so many parallels between the experience in Northern Ireland and the response of the people in Northern Ireland and what I was hearing about in terms of U.S. actions, some, some U.S. activities, and, and their results among, among uh, citizens in different parts of the world. The fact is the terrorists live and move in communities. The people in these communities might not support them. The people in these communities 
uh, might actively oppose them, or they might be sitting on the fence. But of course, when, when people in these communities suffer from a stray bomb, when their doors are kicked in, when they see images of violence or rights violations that rightly or wrongly portray the United States as an evil-doing country, they're drawn to supportive terrorists. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that we should withdraw from all the different actions that, that, that might be helpful, but we have to be very, very careful that we aren't giving terrorists and terrorist groups the opportunity to draw sympathy and recruiting gains to themselves. The final product of overreaction, and, I, and it's related to the second, but I think it's so, so interesting that it can be discussed distinctly, is giving terrorists ideological gains. Um, Michael German's book, Thinking Like a Terrorist, has, has insights that, that I found just, just inspiring when I, when I read it, because terrorists regard themselves as involved in an ideological struggle, struggle with the incumbent governments, ideologies, the U.S., the West, whatever it may be. Now, these ideologies are ridiculous, and their prescriptions are ridiculous. Uh, a white supremacist society in the United States, a Muslim caliphate that, that governs the, the entire world. But these groups are convinced that their plans are desirable and viable, and they're trying to convince others of that. When they, when they do battle uh, against the United States and the West, uh, they don't have much ability to, to build their own legitimacy their, or their own credibility. But what they can do is tear our credibility and legitimacy down. The way they do that, of course, are terror attacks that induce overreaction and misdirection. So when a victim state comes loose from its ideological moorings of tolerance and, and freedom and according rights, when it treats terrorists wrongly according to its own standards, this confirms a terrorist narrative. It confirms a terrorist narrative about their ideology being a competitor to the ideologies of Western countries in the United States. So it's, it's unfortunate but true, and there's no um, right, uh, reverse angle replay or, or, uh, that, that allows us to go back. But sometimes the actions of the United States have been used to confirm the stories that terrorists tell, that the U.S. hates Muslims, that the U.S. is a wicked world power abusing people, that the U.S. wants to occupy Muslim lands. These things aren't true, and they aren't even plausible uh, to most of us. But the question is whether it might look true to terrorists to the people who are ideologically and physically nearby to terrorists and, of course, to potential terrorist recruits. So over, overreaction and misdirection are the second prong of the terrorism strategy. Direct attacks are the first, overreaction and misdirection are the second. And whether, whether I've gotten it right in, in nuance or in detail or even, even overall in, in the first part of what I've said to you, I think there can be general agreement that overreaction and misdirection are mistakes in the context of counterterrorism. The final piece of the puzzle, of course, then, is how to suppress the natural political demand for overreaction and sometimes misdirection. Do you think 911 caused a, a demand for overreaction? I think so. I think so because I was right there uh, supporting policies that I now recognize as having been error in some respect or another. We have an open society. We have a free press. We have competitive politics. We've got an Internet that comes up with wacky ideas from time to time. So what do we do to make it so that overreaction and misdirection are not political imperatives in the, in the event of a terrorist attack? I think that comes down to communications. Sound counterterrorism requires political figures especially, but also the media, to be extremely disciplined in their communications about terrorism. 
And we have, have two audiences to regard in that respect. One is international audiences. I've talked about them already, people who are ideologically or physically close to terrorists. They're watching what we do, and they're listening to what our leaders say. Our basic problem has been that our rhetoric has tended to exalt terrorists and terrorism. When a Western head of state calls a terrorist by name, what a thrill that must send through terrorist groups. What a thrill that must send to people who are considering joining terrorist groups, the idea that I can have something to do with the American president by joining this group. Our actions have rhetorical content. I don't have time to go into them, but I'll encourage my colleague Chris Preble to ask me what I would have said if I had more time. <laughs> There's also a domestic audience that we have to think about, of course. The U.S. domestic audience was naturally predisposed toward overreaction by the September 11th attacks. That's natural. But I think political leaders since then have tended to inflate terror risk, inviting even greater support for even more overreaction. Um, without doubt, they intend well for the country. I'm not saying that anybody uh, is, is intending to, to misdirect or overreact, but it's happened all the same. Promoting fear of terrorism invites overreaction, which is counterproductive. Politicians should make the case for the, for the uh, measures that they think are appropriate. I think there's unanimity for the measures that are most appropriate. The noise you hear is about measures that may not be appropriate. The thing that politicians should do is make those cases in carefully measured terms. What they should not do is give sound bites to cable news to play over and over and over again and bring Americans into a frenzied state, into a, into a, into a state of, well, frankly, terror. So to recap, I think terrorism puts the victim state on the horns of a dilemma. That is, it's at risk of direct attacks and also at risk of overreaction and misdirection in response. Overreaction, misdirection... Uh, tend to waste our blood and treasure. They draw sympathy gains to terrorists. And when we come loose from our ideological moorings and abuse rights, we confirm the narrative that motivates terrorists and motivates people to join terrorist groups. Our rule for responding to terrorism is a simple one that comes from Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Too hot is not just right. We must avoid overreaction. We must quell demands for overreaction. And doing this require, requires sophisticated and disciplined communication strategies. Tomorrow after lunch, we'll hear from Paul Slovic, who's an expert on risk communications. And the final panel of our conference will explore uh, in more detail how to, how to communicate about terrorism. Now, you don't have to agree with me on anything or everything I've said. It will help, and if you do, you get an A and you can leave and give your seat to someone else. What matters, though, is that the incoming administration should have a, a counterterrorism strategy. How, in the view of the incoming administration, does terrorism advance the goals of terrorists? And what are those goals? How will the new administration seek to ensure that terrorists do not achieve their goals? How will the new administration defang terrorism as a strategy? And what are the new administration's communications plan for ter plans for terrorism generally and in the event, heaven forbid, of a terrorist attack? I have now issued my counterterrorism strategy. It's now yours, panelists, yours, audience, and yours, future panelists, to attack, if you wish. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Mike German. I'm a policy counsel with the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, first, I'd like to thank the Cato Institute, Chris Preble and Jim Harper, for finally reading my book and uh, <laughs> plugging it. What he didn't say is it took a year and a half of me goading him into uh, finally reading it. <laughs> Uh, but I'm glad I, he did. Um, 
Uh, I wrote it out of frustration uh, when I left the FBI uh, because, uh, as an F- you know, I, I learned about terrorism in a very unique way by actually try- pretending to be one <laughs> as an FBI undercover agent. It sort of gave me a very different way of looking at the problem. And one of the things I learned was that if you want to know what the terrorists are trying to accomplish, you all, all you have to do is read what they write and listen to what they say. Uh, and usually they telegraph it pretty well because one of the things you have to understand about a clandestine organization is they don't know who they are. And the only way they can communicate with one another is through publication. Uh, so, so the information is all out there to read. <clears throat> uh, in October of 2001, shortly after the September 11th attacks, Osama bin Laden was interviewed on Al Jazeera television. Besides disgust over his gloating, what struck me about his interview was how open he was about what he hoped and expected would come from the attacks. He said, quote, The events of Tuesday, September 11th in New York and Washington are great on all levels. Their repercussions are not over. Although the collapse of the Twin Towers is huge, the events that follow, and I'm not just talking about economic repercussions, those are continuing, the events that follow are dangerous and more enormous than the collapse of the towers. The values of Western civilization under the leadership of America have been destroyed. Those awesome symbolic towers that speak of liberty, human rights, and humanity have been destroyed. They have gone up in smoke. I tell you, freedom and human rights in America are doomed. He cited as proof the U.S. government's pressure on news organizations not to reprint detailed al-Qaeda statements. You might recall there was some concern that there would be coded messages within these statements that could trigger a second round of attacks. This, of course, turns out to be an almost laughably small curtailment of liberty compared to what would be revealed with regard to warrantless wiretapping, uh, detention, and uh, extrajudicial detention and abusive interrogations. But it's amazing to think that, that Osama bin Laden was predicting this result even as the administration was developing these dark side policies in secret. Uh, and what's also interesting to me is how clearly bin Laden telegraphed that he was following the playbook written by Carlos Marighella several decades before. Uh, in his mini-manual of the urban guerrilla, Marighella wrote, quote, The rebellion of the urban guerrilla and his persistence in intervening in public questions is the best way of ensuring popular support for the cause we defend. As soon as a reasonable proportion of the population begins to take seriously the actions of the guerrilla, his success is guaranteed. The government has no alternative except to intensify its repression. The police networks, house searches, the arrest of suspects and innocent persons, and the closing off of streets make life in the city unbearable. The military dictatorship embarks on massive political persecution. Political assassinations and police terror become the routine. What U.S. policymakers failed to understand after 9-11 is that terrorism is not a military strategy that can be defeated with a military counter-strategy. It's instead a political and an economic strategy, as the bin Laden quotes Jess. I understand the economics of of terrorism will be explored later, so I'll leave that aside. Uh, The terrorist political strategy is designed to establish his own legitimacy by bringing the legitimacy of the ruling government into question in the minds of the masses. And it's an interesting political strategy because it begins from a position of profound weakness. Um, It depends entirely on the victim government reacting to the terrorist provocation in a way that undermines its own support. But, you know, just as Marighella said, the government has no choice but to intensify repression. 
what he realizes, just as what bin Laden realized after 9-11, was that governments are made up of human beings, and human beings react uh, in, in, with human nature. And when you get hit by a cheap shot, the first thing you want to do is give a cheap shot back, and often very, very much harder. Uh, so, you know, they're just using human nature, uh, you know, as, as Jim suggested. I'm not saying that people intentionally uh, react in a way that, that's counterproductive. It's just part of, of who we are. And, you know, certainly uh, the U.S. isn't the only one uh, to react this way. But by provoking a disproportionate or unjust response that it affects innocence along with the guilty, terrorists hope to create legitimate grievance out of their attack. And once the injustice the government has revealed through this unjust response, uh, the terrorist violent methods then become justifiable uh, acts of resistance to this unjust government. What bothered me at the time was that it was clear that our policymakers didn't realize bin Laden, uh, what bin Laden was actually trying to accomplish as they all but leapt into the trap that he set by embracing policies that did violence to the universal notions of justice and undermine the rule of law, particularly in the areas of the world where bin Laden sought to have influence. Terrorists always prosper in a lawless environment, and the increasing violence we're seeing around the world, I think, is the predictable result. Uh, to be sure, the United States was not the first country to abandon the rule of law in response to terrorism. The French in Algeria and the British in Northern Ireland used virtually the same tactics we adopted, extrajudicial arrest and detention, combined with coercive interrogation. So it's informative to see how uh, these techniques worked then. Sadi Yassef, a leader in the Algerian terrorist organization, the National Liberation Front, said, quote, actually torture helped the FLN enormously because what it did was expose the real face of the French military. The more they tortured, the more militants we recruited. Similarly, for, former Irish Republican Army member Tommy Gorman explained, quote, we're creating this idea that the British state is not your friend, and at every twist in the road, they were compounding what we were saying. They were doing what we were saying, fulfilling all our propaganda. The British Army, the British government were our best recruiting agents. Today, no doubt, bin Laden would say that waterboarding, Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib are among al-Qaeda's best recruiting agents. What bothers me now is that I'm still not sure policymakers understand this. Director of National Intelligence Mike McConnell was on Charlie Rose last week defending waterboarding, waterboarding, warrantless wiretapping, and other excesses as instrumental in winning a strategic victory over al-Qaeda. But we actually gave al-Qaeda the strategic victory when we turned our, backs on our, our back on our values and fulfilled bin Laden's prophecy. According to the National Counterterrorism Center, deaths from global terrorism have increased every year since 2002. The only way we can win a strategic victory over al-Qaeda and all, over all terrorism, actually, is to reestablish the rule of law and to reclaim our moral authority and, and to reassert ourselves as the champion of human rights and the rule of law around the world. And we can do that by holding our own accountable to the law as they enforce <laughs> the law. And I think that's the most effective counterterrorism strategy that we can have if we're actually trying to counter their strategy as opposed to just impose our own. So I hope that's helpful, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, create some response. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Well, thanks very much. Let me start with a slightly divergent um, strategic note about how to think about this challenge. 
I agree with the great majority of what's been said. I think the, our government and our country as a whole has overreacted to 9-11. But I think by the same token, uh, with, in retrospect, we underreacted to the first assault on the World Trade Center back in 1993. We underreacted to the attack on the USS Cole and our embassies in Dar es Salaam and Nairobi. So the challenge is not – the danger is we shouldn't overreact to that overreaction. We need to have a, a more balanced understanding of the challenge ahead. I think we need to understand this to be a long-term, a serious, and a, an occasionally deadly challenge, but not the functional equivalent of World War II or the Cold War or – international communism or the fascist menace, this is a, a danger that we're simply going to have to learn to live with as most of the rest of the world has, even as we slowly, gradually, patiently uh, address those issues that give rise to international terrorism on such a scale. So sort of that's, that's my overall approach. Um, now, I am going to, like others on the panel, I'm going to be critical of, of American approaches since 9-11, really very critical, but I don't want that to be understood as suggesting we haven't done anything right. There are many things we have done right. Uh, a lot of good people have spent long hours, put their lives on, in harm's way to make us safer, and they've, they've achieved some, some success. So I, as, with that baseline, let me, let me see what my critique is. I think our approaches have been reactive, threat-based, and over-militarized. This is, these are some themes you've, you've heard already. Reactive in that we, the attacks of 9-11 were so horrendous for us psychologically, us as a country psychologically, that there was this visceral need to respond, and this has already been, been addressed. Threat-based in the sense that we are now chasing threats around the world without a, a larger sense of what we are trying to achieve in a, in a positive sense. Um, the the last national security strategy issued in March 2006 began with the words, America is at war, which I suppose in a technical sense was true. But the strategy, everything in the strategy then proceeded from that fundamental premise. And it got our national security hostage to an external threat that is very elusive, that is uh, dispersed, eclectic, eclectic, and will lead us down one blind alley after another if that's all we're, we're doing. Uh, so the war metaphor has been more than just an unfortunate turn of phrase. It has led us down a dangerous and self-defeating path. The last uh, national intelligence estimate, the most recent national intelligence estimate on the long-term terrorist challenge, concluded that the uh, terrorist threat is intensifying and spreading around the world. This was issued several years after 9-11. That was about as severe an indictment of terrorism policy as one could imagine. Something is fundamentally wrong if this is the result of all this, uh, this effort. So I think this over-militarized, threat-based approach has affected every aspect of our foreign policy, our military preparedness and, and focus, our diplomacy, our public diplomacy, our development aid strategies, uh, and, and several others. Uh, I've worked at one time or another in my career in all those domains, so I don't want to single out intelligence as the most important, but I was asked to talk about intelligence since that was my last job. So I will focus on intelligence, but one could as easily go through the same sort of comprehensive look at all these other domains to see how this misunderstanding of the terrorist threat has affected the way our country engages the world. So let me just focus on a few aspects of how I think 
uh, our counterterrorism approaches after 9-11 have affected the intelligence community and then end with some thoughts about how this might be fixed. Because our approach is so threat-based, we created the National Counterterrorism Center, which in some respects has been a good thing because it improved, I think it has improved, tactical counterterrorist cooperation. You have counterterrorism operators from FBI and CIA and other agencies now working together. That's a good thing. At the same time, it has weakened our strategic counterterrorism because it has, for the most part, removed those people working the terrorist threat from their colleagues who have deeper regional, economic, political, uh, and historical cultural knowledge. The net result, to my mind, is we may be better at tactical counterintelligence or counterterrorism intelligence, but we're almost surely weaker at strategic counterterrorism intelligence, meaning while we're looking for the next car bomb, we may be missing the next major threat looming over the horizon. Uh, Second, it has led, it meaning the um, over-militarized approach toward uh, terrorism, it has led to a fixation on current intelligence analysis at the expense expense of strategic analysis. This has been talked about by many. I won't dwell on it, but I'll just talk about a couple of um, aspects of it uh, that, that I saw very much firsthand. In the first instance, it leads to an echo chamber effect. Because intelligence analysts are expected to present to the president, have been expected, I think I can use the, uh, something other than the present tense now, have been expected to deliver to the president raw intelligence about the latest terrorism threat, it presents a certain picture of the world in the minds of the president, vice president, and, uh, and other key leaders. They then respond to the intelligence they're being given by posing questions, and it leads to a kind of echo chamber effect. They, they hear what they asked to be given, and it, it is, it's a reinforcing cycle that has led us into a very dangerous uh, situation. Um, it also leads to a very skewed understanding of the terrorist challenge. It, it is as if you got all your information from the daily newspaper. I read the newspaper every day, but it's not the only thing I read. It, it doesn't give you the depth of the understanding of the terrorist threat that, that is needed. Um, another dimension of how we've gotten off on the wrong uh, approach after 9-11 is where intelligence reform led us. There was such a deep-seated set of pressures that came to bear during a hotly contested presidential election campaign in 2004 that it led to the superficially attractive quick-fix solution of creating the intelligence czar, which to my mind has created not not another one layer of bureaucracy, but another two or three layers of bureaucracy, uh, and probably contributed to the danger of politicization. I'm not saying we're over-politicized now, but the model is more conducive to politicization than the old model was. so you've got a, a, a wieldy, over-bureaucratized model that is going to have to be fixed at some point. Um, I very much doubt that this will be President Obama's first tranche of, of changes, but over the course of the first term, something is going to need to be done. Um, intelligence has become over-militarized, uh, and it's not just in the persons of so many flag rank officers, most of them retired, in positions of, of authority, but simply the the amount of resources, attention, and energy given to the military side of intelligence at the expense of others. This is, this is a danger. Um, I might just mention, too, that uh, with the appointment of Admiral Denny Blair as DNI, the prospective appointment of him as DNI, uh, and the appointment of Jim Jones uh, as uh, National Security Advisor, 
There's eight stars right there. <laughs> uh, then the other person around the NSC sta- uh, table will be Admiral Mike Mullen. That's, that's 12 stars, 24 if you count both shoulders. That's a lot of stars. And, I, and all these people are good people. It's, not, it's just that even under President Obama, there has been this, this tendency to, to bring so much military uh, horsepower to bear on, on the problem. Uh, and the final problem I would say is, and this touches on a point that uh, Jim Harper already made, that we are retreating into Cold War habits of secrecy in our intelligence community. In some respects, it's entirely understandable. A lot of the aspects of dealing with counterterrorism are secret, but it has pushed us back into habits that needed to be overcome long ago uh, rather than perpetuated. So what to do next, and I will try to be quick here. I'll touch on most of those points. Five points, um, none of which involve further organizational change in the intelligence community. I think we've had enough of that for a while. I don't think you need to fix the institutions themselves, but you need to revise some other things within the existing framework. First, fix the demand side of the intelligence problem. All the attention since 9-11 and the notorious WMD estimate has been on the supply side, what the intelligence, the quality of what the intelligence community has been providing to policy. Not nearly enough scrutiny has been attached to the demand side, what the policy side, how the policy side is using, misusing, and abusing intelligence, what it is asking of intelligence or failing to ask of intelligence, and the same is true of of Congress. I think the DNI setup, as I mentioned earlier, risks accentuating that problem uh, of of politicization. We'll see how it develops. Second recommendation is uh, related to that is to restore the primacy of strategic analysis, and one way of doing this in a very practical way would be to create an interagency strategic planning group. Uh, There was such a group that met. I was the intelligence community's representative on it a few years ago. It met once before it disbanded. Uh, There have been various attempts over administrations to try to do this. They always fail. Uh, It would require the president himself insisting Strategic planning be done on an interagency basis. It may, those of you who haven't worked in government may be astonished that this doesn't happen already. But what happens is the State Department policy planning does its planning, the Defense Department does its, and the Uniform Military does its, uh, and so on. And these, these thoughts, these analyses only come together at the, at the high policy level when they've already crystallized into policy positions. It's not the right, right way to, to run things. So a strategic planning group would, would help overcome that. And it should have a strong economic component, too. Um, That's self-evident these days. Reform, congressional oversight. Um, There was a lot of recommendations coming out of the 9-11 Commission that weren't paid any attention to. Uh, Congress prefers to critique intelligence performance after the fact rather than offer recommendations before the fact, because if they do the latter, they're co-responsible for the outcomes. So it's much easier. But as we are now, the, the, the National Intelligence Estimate on Terrorism, which is now three years old, um, was, I, I thought, quite an alarming document. There were no significant hearings held on this, nor was the intelligence community or the policy community held accountable for why we've gotten to this place after all we've, we've tried to do. Uh, we should be doing a lot more in Iran, too. Uh, con- Congress should be. Um, uh, a fourth point um, Rather than try another reorganization of intelligence, keep the current organization but accentuate the 
DNI's Director of National Intelligence's strategic coordinating role and de-emphasize the operational role. If you look, and I hope you don't, at the DNI, the outgoing DNI's 500-day plan and his the 100-day plan before that, this is micromanagement of to the point of absurdity. Uh, the DNI cannot, should not be doing that level of detailed analysis. Rather, in coordination with Congress, the executive branch ought to work out a set of broad and measurable goals for the intelligence community and then leave it to the intelligence community's leaders to uh, put those into effect and hold them accountable if they don't. For example, how about doubling the number of qualified Arabic speakers in the next three years or something like that, measurable. Final point related to those, and I have one minute left. I'll give you back 30 seconds. Um, We need a long overdue change to the culture of intelligence. Um, The kind of world we face now, not only in terrorism but in everything else, calls for a more open, engaged intelligence community rather than the model that developed understandably during the Cold War. Highly Highly secretive agencies with very specialized mandates that operate apart from the world out there. We now need what I have called a virtual intelligence community that is online, engaged, open, in in constant interaction not only with American academics and and other experts and thinkers, but with those around the world, including Chinese epidemiologists who may know more about bird flu than anybody else. This is the kind of intelligence community that needs to be created. The current model could accommodate it, but it's a long-range strategic challenge. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. I feel a bit of a blow-in with all you experts from the U.S. Um, But since I do come from Ireland, I would just like to start with an Irish story. There's a drunk underneath a big street lamp on his knees, and a police officer comes up to him and says, what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for my £10 note. And the police officer said, where did you lose it? And he said, I lost it over there. And he said, well, why are you then looking under the streetlight over here? And he said, there's more light here. It seems to me that that's a good message for developing counterterrorism strategy. We need to go where the evidence is. And what I want to do in my short talk is to say, or try to develop the argument anyway, that, that many of the responses that we saw to political violence in Northern Ireland were in fact counterproductive, and I would, and I've argued this elsewhere, help maintain and sustain the conflict over the 30 years. And one of the first things I want to say, though, that terror in all its manifestations is clearly very context-specific and it has very different origins and the social and political characteristics are very, very different. But nevertheless, I think we can argue that the origins and causes of the problems in Northern Ireland, although very, very different from the events of 9-11 and various other incidents around the world, we can learn the lessons from Northern Ireland. One of the things we tend to forget, I think, is the intensity of that conflict. Um, McGarry and O'Leary, who are two political scientists, refer to the astonishing scale of the conflict when seen in comparative perspective. And they went on and said, Northern Ireland was by far the most internally politically violent of the recognisably continuous liberal democracies during 1948 to 1997, both in absolute numbers killed and relatively, as indicated by the per capita death toll. 
Northern Ireland has a population of 1.7 million, and during the Troubles, um, 3,600 people were killed and some 45,000 were um, injured. And on a per capita basis, in my maths are right, that is um, like you here experiencing five 9-11s for every 30 years of the conflict. So that puts what we went through in some sort of perspective, I think. Now, there were a number of elements of the anti-terrorism strategy which were developed to deal with the increasing disorder stemming from the civil rights movement, which were counterproductive principally because there was no sociological um, assessment of the impact of the different strategies, particularly on the Catholic working class nationalist communities. The single most disastrous measure, as you probably will all remember, was the introduction of internment in 1971. Symbolically, it suggested to the nationalist population that the demands of the civil rights movement for a more fair and just society in Northern Ireland <coughs> could no longer be carried forward through dialogue and persuasion. The rule of law had been abandoned. Practically, it led to hundreds of young men in, young, um, in the working-class nationalist communities joining the, uh, joining the IRA. And what was crucial about that event also was it was accompanied by five interrogation techniques, um, which then reappeared in Abu Ghraib and various other places. Um, the government set up a committee of inquiry to investigate the claims, and, um, but it restricted the terms of reference so that the legality of the methods weren't considered. Um, and then following mounting criticisms, the government then set up another inquiry, and that was um, undecided with one um, member of the committee um, arguing uh, and submitting a uh, minority report that the techniques um, certainly were unlawful both in domestic and international law. But the overall impact of that was there was no clear statement coming out of those judicial inquiries. And so the animosity which those activities had generated led to the nationalist community feeling, feeling further alienated from the rule of law. The widespread opposition to internment was also reinforced by army harassment in Catholic areas and a whole series of disputed instances in which um, innocent civilians were shot. And, of course, the most significant of one of all was when um, 13 civilians were shot dead by the army um, after an anti-internment protest in um, Derry in 1972. Those events were also investigated at the time by Lord Widgery, um, and he exonerated the army. Subsequently, we now have another judicial inquiry um, operating under Lord Saville, and he is due to report the, um, over the um, next year. And um, again, we see that because there was no adequate um, judicial inquiry at the time, that um, that further alienated the sense of feeling at, um, of the Catholic community and their feelings towards the law in Northern Ireland. Following those two disasters, what we saw was the government developing a counter-terrorism um, strategy, which first of all gave huge um, wide powers to um, the army and the police in relation to search, arrest and detention. And these powers then subsequently further alienated that um, situation in Northern Ireland on the streets as people felt humiliated at airports and in um, in detention facilities um, and a sense of injustice because um, they felt that, um, that, 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 that they were being stopped unfairly. 
Um, just to illustrate that, a typical journey for a Catholic going into the city centre in Belfast on foot would be stopped perhaps as many as 10 times by the army. Um, in terms of house searches, it's calculated that Catholic houses were um, searched on literally thousands of occasions um, during um, the first 10 or 15 years um, of, of, of the Troubles, uh, leading to a situation where it's been estimated that perhaps it was one in four of every single Catholic house was searched by the army at some particular point in time. Now, there's now extensive literature showing the impact of these um, powers um, on the way people at the individual level um, saw their identities um, being um, challenged, saw their sense of self being challenged, and their attitudes towards authority and their politics um, changed quite substantially. But more importantly, at the community level, it helped build a sense of, social a sense of solidarity against the police and the army. And at the broader level, I've argued elsewhere in a book called, which I called Suspect Communities, that these powers on the street led to a situation where um, anybody who was a Catholic, who lived in a Catholic area, was then defined by those in authority as suspect. And in Britain, anyone who was Irish, who had a connection with Ireland or Irish people, became a suspect as well. And so it was a little thing like an accent, a look, or a passport, um, which gave rise to suspicion. And one of the crowning humiliations in all this um, development was the fact that we developed a separate system for Irish travellers at ports and airports, suggesting that the Irish as a whole were now suspect. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm, my voice. The problem, it seems to me, with arbitrary and draconian police and army powers is that they alienate the very communities which the police and the army, from whom they require good intelligence. People are simply not going to report instances or provide crucial information to the police when either their last contact has been at best unpleasant and at worst humiliating and abusive. Now, the second major counter-terrorism measure which was developed in Northern Ireland was the total restructuring of the criminal justice system. Trial by jury was abolished and substantial changes were made in the rules of evidence for those who were charged with what were known as schedule offences, um, which were offences arising from the Troubles. All other offences were processed through the existing structures, and so what we had developed was a dual-track system of justice with those involved with political violence dealt, being dealt with through one system and robbers, rapists and thieves um, without any political motivations, people who we, with Belfast black humour called ordinary decent criminals <laughs> um, were then dealt with through the other system. Um, these radical changes, having a dual-track system, further incensed um, this, this notion of injustice and unfairness and um, reduced further Catholics' confidence in the rule of law. The last aspect of the counter-terrorism strategy, which I think I'd like to comment upon, and it relates to the whole notion of intelligence, is that the police and the army relied very heavily on the use of informers to provide intelligence on both the IRA and loyalist paramilitaries. 
But the strict rules governing the use of informers, which applied in Britain, did not apply to Northern Ireland. And the decision to do that was obviously taken at the highest political level, in my opinion. So by the mid-1980s, the army had recruited a man called Brian Nelson to supply intelligence on the two main Protestant paramilitary groups, the UDA and the UVF. Now, Nelson's activities under the direct control of the British army handlers resulted in um, murders and attempted murders of dozens of Catholics, including the murder of one leading defence solicitor, Pat Finucane. Um, those activities were subsequently um, investigated by a Canadian judge, um, um, Justice Corrie, and he concluded that at least 14 murders and attempted murders had been committed. And recently, the police ombudsman has come up with more detail about collusion occurring between the uh, RUC special branch and lawless paramilitaries. Let me conclude then. The first lesson to be learnt from Northern Ireland, it seems to me, is that at times of crisis, it's essential to uphold the rule of law, point that Michael's already made, and also have a respect for human rights. Special legislation corrupts the administration of justice, decreases confidence in the rule of law, and alienates the very communities from which the police and security forces rely on good intelligence. The second lesson to be learnt is that all organisations involved in dealing with political violence, from politicians who develop the strategies, the secret services and the police who carry them out, must be independently and democratically accountable. There are far too many examples from Northern Ireland of agencies of the state acting beyond the law or else mobilising the law for their own political ends. There must be strong accountability mechanisms at all levels and at the very heart of government. And then the final lesson is that the perceived injustices, whether on the streets, in the courtroom or further afield, have very real consequences. They encourage young men and women to turn to political violence. And it seems to me that all those three lessons are something that is very uh, relevant to a counterintelligence strategy over here in the US. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you all very much. That was terrific. Uh, I want to thank the panelists for uh, also keeping to the time. I, I won't take credit for that, they, uh, which means, uh, for all of you, uh, more time for questions and answers. Um, I will uh, lay down a few ground ro rules for those of you who would like to ask a question. Please wait for the microphone, especially for the benefit of the folks who are not here in this room but who are listening uh, elsewhere or, or watching on the Internet. Uh, keep your questions short. I will uh, exercise my authority as chair to bundle questions if we uh, have many and are not getting enough uh, time for each of them. I'm going to um, first, however, exercise my prerogative as chair and just ask a very quick question. I, well, first an observation. <coughs> um, I, I was very taken by Bob's discussion about the over-militarization of the, uh, the response to the threat of terrorism, and I am very sympathetic in that and written a bit myself. I will note, uh, I did not read from their bios, but I will note that Bob's long and distinguished career in uh, public policy and service uh, began at the U.S. Naval Academy. I will also note, with respect to Mike's... Take. <laughs> I will also note, with respect to Mike's presentation, the element of his bio that stands out, he alluded to it, but I will reiterate it, a 16-year veteran of federal law enforcement, Mike German. Okay, so these are two people among four who have a very 
uh, personal connection uh, and I think give them, in my own opinion, additional credence to their critique. Um, But I want to pick up on something that both Jim and Mike alluded to. And that is, given the human nature to respond in a visceral way to an attack like 9-11, how do we, how do policymakers transcend this normal, natural human impulse to, rea- to react? What, what are some concrete recommendations, if any, that you can give us to allow us or to think through how we transcend those natural human imp- impulses? Well, first, first let, me, let me say, that, and, and, and I was reminded of this by, by Bob Hutchings, that, that it shouldn't go without saying um, that a lot of people are doing a lot of good in terms of um, terrorism counter-strategy, terrorism uh, counter-activity. And so we, we are, I want to express my gratitude, and I know every decent person is, appreciates the, the work that men and women around the world are doing. My criticism, and I think, I think our criticisms on this panel, go to the strategies, or in some cases the lack of strategy. So, so what are leaders to do? I, I take this as your invitation for me to tell a vignette or something that I would have told in Keep my main short. remarks, Chris. Yes. Thank you. Keep it short. <clears throat> Listen, there, you can do it right and you can do it wrong. And I, I'll give some brief examples, uh, one brief example of, of, of either of both. Um, I was impressed, frankly, when the uh, subway attacks occurred in London by, by what I saw DHS Secretary Michael Chertoff say on cable. He, won, he went on and he said words to the effect of, we're going to learn from this. We're going to learn from this, and we're going to do what we can. And that was a fascinating message point, if you will. Maybe stumbled across, maybe planned. I don't know. But it didn't say, uh, the subways are safe. Go ahead and go on the subways. It didn't say, the subways are unsafe. Don't go on the subways. Because I think either of those messages would have caused people to think about safety and security and, and worry about safety and security. So we're going to learn from this. And that expressed confidence. And I think the reaction in the United States you saw was relatively, relatively muted, relatively calm. People went on. Um, recognizing the existence of this threat, not so great that they couldn't go ahead and go on subways. A particularly bad example of communications comes from August 2007. Um, that was when the liquid bomb attacks were thwarted in, in um, the U.K. And a representative of Scotland Yard uh, re- read a prepared statement to cameras in which he said, We cannot stress too highly the severity that this plot represented. Put simply, this was intended to be mass murder on an unimaginable scale. Well, that's, that's movie stuff. That's drama stuff. That's great for TV. But it is absolute communications and leadership malpractice to communicate that way about a terrorist plot that has been foiled. And some would argue didn't have any uh, chance of, of, of occurring in the first place. What an opportunity to communicate to a worldwide audience and to communicate on the entire next weekend's cable stations to the U.S. Um, that a good thing happened. We had, a, we had an important success. People can be confident, and they can continue to engage in, in counterterrorism themselves by reporting incipient plots and that kind of thing. A success was turned into a fear-mongering event. Um, so I think it takes discipline, but it's not that hard to say the right things in the context of terrorism. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I, I might just add something. I mean, Bob said that, that uh, you know, there was the overreaction after 9-11, but there had been an underreaction before 9-11. I think I'd quibble with that a little bit in, in that it wasn't a matter of degree. I think people were working just as hard on the problem before 9-11. Than, uh, it was that, that it was an incompetent response before 9-11. Um, 
and maybe to be more charitable, an incomplete response. In other words, the tools were there, they just weren't being used. And I think a lot of the problem that allowed the excesses to start right after 9-11 was that uh, the intelligence community and the law enforcement community lied to the American people about what they knew. You might remember that right after 9-11, the mantra was there was nothing that we knew. There was, you know, this came out of the blue. There, there was no information uh, that we could have used to, to interdict this blot. And it wasn't until 2004 when the, when the 9-11 Commission came out that we realized that, the, that these, the intelligence community actually knew quite a bit about this plot and could have done things had they reacted appropriately to that information. So rather than the focus of our efforts right away being to fix what was actually wrong with the intelligence community right away, it was to unleash the intelligence community, unleash everybody, and let them go out and expand their collection, expand their operations that would then impact innocent people and create these legitimate grievances. Um, so I think, you know, and it sort of ties back to the excessive secrecy that's involved in these things. I think the more information that's out there, the more accountable we hold these agencies the more effective they will be. And what we're looking for is an effective response. Let me pick up on that. We had a question from outside uh, that was handed to me, which, uh, which I had jotted down. The question is, how do you measure overreaction? I pick up on something that Patty said. In Northern Ireland, jury trials were suspended. Okay? We haven't gone that far yet. So how do we uh, differentiate between overreaction and the, just the right amount? Um, how do we respond to those who argue we haven't gone nearly as far as to suspend jury trials, for example. So have we not truly overreacted? Would, would either of you care to weigh in on that? Or We, we, we had an um, expression in Northern Ireland called the politics of the last atrocity, um, which I think is an interesting point to make here because um, we did have so many disastrous events you know, where 10 or 15 people were killed on, on a particular occasion. And um, I th do think the politician did learn from that that the need to be responsible um, and not simply ratchet up the um, strategy each time you had another atrocious, uh, um, a, a terrible event. So um, I, I, I think we can learn from that. But in terms of overreaction... Um, Yes, you haven't gone as far as um, abolishing trial by jury, but what, will, what worries me is that there's more and more pressure coming on to change the nature of the criminal justice system because of the um, allegedly the difference between a terrorist um, activity and an ordinary criminal activity. And that worries me. Um, I, mean, I would firmly argue that you can still deal with people involved in terrorist violence through the ordinary criminal courts. But once you change that, once you change that method and you have a special um, um, court, then you um, have a, yet another uh, feeling of injustice and something else that can be used ideologically against you. We have a question down here. Do you want to respond to that, Bob? Just, just very briefly. Uh, you I think the way a democratic society handles these questions is not to answer them a priori, but to set up democratic processes yeah. that work these out step by step. If there were uh, a, a robust process in place that combined the uh, three branches of government in an appropriate way, that's good enough for me. It's when you have the executive branch arrogating all those rights to itself in a very secretive manner that I begin to get worried. 
Not that I know before the fact exactly where that law line should be drawn, but I'd like to be to see a process involving smarter people than me engaged uh, actively in determining that. Okay, we have a question down here in the front. Let me ask Chris's question in a little different way. Can you identify yourself, Bruce? Oh, sorry, uh, Bruce Schneier. Uh, and it's, it's about uh, the natural tendency to overreact. In a democratic society, politicians have to follow what people want. Others are not going to get reelected. So, so imagine two politicians. One's going to overreact, and one is, one is going to say, well, you know, the threat's not that important. We shouldn't overreact. The person who overreacts, you know, four years later is running for reelection. If there's another attack, he's proven right. If there isn't another attack, he can claim success. Someone up here said the proof is in the pudding. But the proof might not actually be in the pudding. It might not be any pudding. So the politician who says, don't overreact, if he's wrong, he's out of a job. So there's a natural tendency on either side to overreact. I mean, looking at what Obama can do, there are things that politically he can't do that are correct, that are correct and proper because it's too risky politically. And that's what I think we have to fix, and that's the hard one. So, question, so from people on the panel who have the political experience, how do we make it okay to say don't overreact, even if something happens? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot because I have high hopes for the incoming administration, uh, and it is a huge risk because if something happens in the next few years, it could undermine. I don't want to over you, you use too extravagant a word because severely undermine his presidency through no fault of his own, whatever. I think he's stuck, as your question implies, because he is hoist on the petard by the petard of the Bush administration's post 9-11 strategy. We as a country might have reacted to 9-11 very differently. Uh, the administration might have helped lead us to a different understanding of this challenge. The message should have been indomitability not revenge, that we are a robust, powerful, strong nation. These are weak people who have resorted to the quintessential weapon of the weak against the strong terrorism, and it's not going to defeat us. We're going to go about our business, and, and we know that a, another attack could happen. We could have had this kind of message, and by now we would be living in, in, a, in a world where we feel fairly comfortable with that. We're not in that world yet, although I think the public has moved. It's not moved far enough. So... What has to happen now, I think, is for us, for the new administration, gradually and carefully to walk us back to a different understanding of the threat, uh, mindful that anything, any rhetoric that seems to dismiss the threat is, is, a, is, is politically dangerous to, to, to try, as your question suggests. Mike? Uh, you, you know, par partly in answer to Bruce's question and, and partly to the previous one, um, to me it's really easy to – to, uh, define overreaction, when the rights and, and prerogatives of innocent people are impacted by the counterterrorism strategy, that's an overreaction, because that's not actually going to help security. Listening to my phone calls, you know, the NSA listening to my phone calls isn't going to help improve security at all, because I'm not engaged with terrorists. So once, once the counterterrorism strategy is starting to impact and restrict the freedoms of innocent people, that's when you start having that building of legitimate grievance. So that's what the overreaction is that we're trying to avoid. And really, it's in the po a politician's long-term interest to make sure that they're doing that to the greatest extent possible. And I agree with Bob that if we have democratic processes, 
particularly where there is transparency, uh, will build that. Um, it will be in their long-term interest. And I think the reason that we've seen, you know, a change in government in, in, in the United States is because the American public in general is saying, hey, this is too much, it's an overreaction, and we need to, to ratchet back to what we, we more traditionally uh, uh, emphasize as our own values. You want to add, Jim? So, yeah. The, the overreaction, how do you measure overreaction question, was very interesting to me. And, and the, the kernel in my mind to answer in answer to that was, was that all that matters to me is that people have in mind that overreaction is, is, a, is a serious error, so that people thinking, I'm going to do this, are also thinking, I may be induced mistakenly to do this. It's just important to have that in mind. But Bob's answer was the best, obviously. Um, so, so to Bruce, the politicians do get into a bidding war about, about just about anything, and, and especially terrorism. But there, there are uh, counterexamples that are quite illustrative, and, and I think uh, Mayor Bloomberg is a great example when this, when this uh, plot to uh, blow up JFK um, that was physically impossible to do, but, but still a plot, <laughs> when, that, when that was revealed, you know, he was saying, get, get on with your lives, get over it, get a life. And no political repercussions. In fact, some would argue he ha- is enjoying too much political success, having been uh, elected once again. <laughs> and so, so people don't necessarily respond. The assumption among politicians is, is that I have to outbid the, the, my opponent in terms of in terms of fear, but showing the leadership to deny that is politically successful as well. There's a question here on the rail. We'll continue this discussion uh, right there. The microphone on. Can you hear him? You can. We can hear him. I'm, I want to make sure everyone else can hear. Him. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Al Alborn here, uh, Mr. Hutchings. I know you were chairman of the NIC. You probably saw Al Qaeda's hundred-year plan, and they think in much longer terms than us. The question is, we're talking about overreacting, but as we're faced with a budget crunch and dealing with an asymmetrical threat that thinks in terms of 5, 10, and 20 years, the time between the two World Trade Centers being an example. How do we prepare, how do we present ourselves from underreacting to what we all admit is an eventual attack? Well, you know, it seems to me that the danger of underreaction is not that we're going to whittle down our counterterrorism processes as they've been pursued. I think that would be politically untenable. I don't think that's President-elect Obama's intent anyway. My, my fear is that we will under-deploy the other resources that will be more relevant to this challenge in the long run. He's already said that foreign aid, the increases in foreign aid may have to be casualties of economic realities. Well, maybe, maybe he's right, but it's a shame because there's a big role for development assistance and a more targeted uh, development assistance. There's a big role for public diplomacy and diplomacy and all these other instruments that uh, have gotten so skewed in this country, uh, you know, start beginning with the Cold War, but not revised afterwards. In fact, if anything, further diminished after the Cold War because development aid and public diplomacy were both seen as part of the national security apparatus. And when the external threat of the Soviet Union disappeared, so did funding for USAID and, and USIA. So 
the underreaction I would worry about is failure to follow through on the understanding that the terrorist challenge needs to be met with these other instruments as well. And they cost money. Uh, back there. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, Sebastian Gorka, National Defense University College of International Security Affairs. Professor Hutchins, you said something very provocative that the new office of DNI could actually increase the risk of the politicization of intelligence. Could you go into some detail over why the threat has increased? And also, Mr. German, you said that before 19, during, between 93 and 2001, there was uh, incompetence with regards to the growing threat. Could you specify whether that was operational or political? Yeah, on the office of the DNI, again, I'm not really talking about the incumbent, and certainly not the, the, the nominee, Denny Blair, who I think is a fine choice and a fellow Naval Academy graduate. Uh, I, I think simply the structure of this office is more political than the old setup, where the director of central it – was, it was unwieldy, the old setup – but the director of central intelligence was simultaneously in charge of an enormous, powerful agency and uh, the point person for the president on intelligence. Now you've removed – from the DNI position, that operational role, and it's really all political. He is part of that team without the same level of direct operational responsibility. So I worry about it. Some of the consequences are visible already. Uh, when the DNI is the administration's point person for defending the wiretapping program, this is a mistake. For the same reason, in my view, it's a mistake for a uh, uniformed general to be the point person in defending the surge. That's the job of political leaders. And the uniformed military and intelligence ought to be kept one step at least removed from policy advocacy. So this is the drift that I worry about. Uh, Mike, you had a separate, a separate question for you. Uh, and, and I think the answer is uh, on the 9-11 failure that it was both – or the failure between uh, 93 and, and 2001 was both operational and political. I mean, I think certainly, you know, the failure to deal with the foreign policy issues that allowed – a, a transnational terrorist group to develop uh, down to, you know, what you would see in the 9-11 Commission report as far as the operational failures uh, where, where uh, information concerning the plots was in the hands of the government and just not uh, used properly. You know, one of the things that, that I always found interesting, right after 9-11 sort of, and this was the same in, in Northern Ireland, it was that the criminal justice system is not robust enough to handle a threat this big where if you look at the 9-11 Commission report, the significant pieces of information are, are being developed by the criminal investigators who are investigating the, the East Africa embassy bombings, who are investigating the coal bombings, and it was the intelligence community within their structure that was withholding the crucial pieces so that they couldn't be put together. But if we were following the criminal justice model and they were allowed to get that information that was in the hands of the other agencies, they may have been very effective in, in, in interdicting the plot. So we abandoned the system that was working in favor of the system that wasn't working. Uh, there was another question in the back, right there on the aisle. Hi. Um, <clears throat> sorry, Kayla Rizzoli from American University. Um, you were talking about how we need to stop overreacting and how that causes for more people to join terrorist organizations. And I was wondering what you suggest for our inmates that are in Guantanamo that we're talking about releasing. How do we stop them from being ideological foundations for future terrorists? Was that directed to anyone in particular or no? Well, as to the, as to the Guantanamo inmates themselves, uh, 
I assume that if they're to the extent they they're mentally stable, um, they will have a, a negative opinion of the United States and may may join efforts to to undo us. It's but but their numbers are small. Their capabilities are 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 minimal to do so. And and it you know the the reports of Guantanamo detainees returning to the battlefield. Um, it's not that great a threat to the United States if they're on the quote-unquote battlefield in Yemen, in Afghanistan, wherever it is. We don't want them to be on a battlefield anywhere. But but I don't know. And, and there, are, there are people better than me to, to answer what to do with the Guantanamo detainees. But as far as the rhetorical content of our behavior in terms of Guantanamo, especially with regard to those detainees, it, it's been very bad. And, and more importantly, the message worldwide that Guantanamo has sent has been, has been very poor rhetoric about what type of country the United States is. This is obviously very, rele- very relevant. Do you, you want to answer? Just, let's just get an answer from each of the, each of the panelists, because this has come up over and over again. With President-elect Obama has asked the question all the time, what to do with the Guantanamo detainees? What, what do you think, Mike? And, and I'll go right across the board. Um, we- I think that no matter what hypothetical damage these 250 people could do, it's not nearly as significant as the damage of having an unjust system within uh, our counterterrorism effort is to recruiting around the world against the United States. So, you know, the the risks are actually very small compared to the risk of maintaining an unjust system. Um, You know, where, where... People, there's evidence that somebody's done something wrong. They should be charged, tried, and convicted in a regular court, uh, just like any other criminal. And uh, uh, if there isn't, you know, what's what's been clear in Guantanamo is that wholly innocent people are there. We know that is true. The government has admitted that is true. So as long as that's the case, the only way we can restore our honor and our 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 role in the world as, as a defender of human rights and liberty is to uh, go through the legal process and where there isn't evidence, let people go. And, you know, these people are going to be the most watched people in the entire world. So, <laughs> right. you know, the idea that, that there is this one bad guy out there who can destroy the United States of America, I think, is, is fairly ridiculous. Do either Bob or Patty want to weigh in on very, that? Very briefly, I don't have any great, great insights on this, but I, I would just start with the assertion that indefinite detention of individuals without any protection, any normal protection under the law is unacceptable. Temporary detention, yes, maybe may under international legal considerations of supreme emergency, but the temporary period has long since expired. So close Guantanamo, and I'm not sure exactly how to, how to deal with those prisoners, but they need, they need to be put under some form of legal process that we would recognize as just. It seems to me that um, internment was our um, Guantanamo. It served as a um, catalyst for um, saying to the young men, as I've already said, that um, that there there is no future under the rule of law. Violence is the only solution. And symbolically, Guantanamo is having that message throughout the world. And the sooner that you can get rid of it, the better. I think that ideologically it will have a huge impact on lessening the criticisms of the United States. Thank you. A question right there. Uh, Vijay Nilekani from Nuclear Energy Institute. Um, I generally agree with the thrust of the panel, but are two sticky but ethical questions. If you have, one, if you have a guy in, 
uh, you have apprehended a guy either in the U.S. or overseas that may have credible information about a weapons of mass destruction threat. Say they can, he can level New York City or Washington, D.C. Uh, how far are you going to give him the benefit of doubt as uh, in, in due process like a typical criminal? And question number two, I think you sort of alluded to that. Uh, Almost everybody in Gitmo Bay can probably be released if they are tried in a traditional court of law with a, a jury of equals and stuff because the, there's evidence, but it's circumstantial or hearsay or through waterboarding or whatever it is. Uh, so are you suggesting that all these really violent guys be released? Uh, did you all understand that question? Quick, quickly, uh, how much leeway to, uh, to someone suspected of having knowledge of WMD, uh, the ability to use WMD, how much leeway does that change your answers in any way? Second of all, uh, how confident are you of conviction uh, given the paucity of information or what information can be made available in the course of trial of the, of the Guantanamo detainees? It is your uh, job to take the question. There's, else wants to take uh, yeah. Uh, well, let's, well, let's, we'll have we'll we'll have some discussion about the the possibility of terrorist possession and use of nuclear weapons, and so so that uh, hypothetical is quite hypothetical, and I, and I don't think it, it's a realistic scenario. In my own opinion, it's it's certainly possible, but how much abuse are you willing to? Indulge in, in order to in order to that to, to to reach that scenario, we're talking about balancing between two very disparate things. That's the threat of immediate attack and the appearance of the United States in the world. That's comparing the weight of a rock to the length of a line. But you have to understand that these things have to be balanced. And so, when the United States, which is which has been, and I hope remains and will be the beacon of liberty in the world. When the United States talks about walking away from that, um, the, the rhetorical power of that, the, rhetor the message that that sends to the world is just awful. And it, and it causes lots of errors that we've seen in, in the execution of U.S. policies that have made the U.S. Um, look very, very bad and brought real dangers, that is, immediate dangers, to U.S. interests around the world and obviously to the United States at home. So, do I, do I yeah, very, very briefly, I mean, I, I don't have any good answers to this one either. On the first question, I think it could be, under certain extraordinary circumstances, morally justifiable to resort to extreme measures if there were the imminence of, of catastrophic attack. But my threshold would be very, very, very high. I mean, this is not something that allows for a a sliding scale of anything that might have some tidbit of information. That's the, that's the danger. So I would raise the, that bar uh, uh, very, very high. And on the second, uh, you know, I think we, we still have to have a process. If we have inmates at our detainees at Guantanamo who are guilty of the things you suggest, I want to see the evidence somewhere. Uh, and if there's no evidence, I, I'm not buying the argument that these people are can be detained indefinitely. It's just it doesn't add up. There's got to be some evidence, and maybe it is from highly secretive methods, and therefore the, the, the methods that we use to exercise uh, due process have to be highly secretive. But, but there has to be some process to establish uh, a, a basis to hold people indefinitely. And I would just say on the ticking time bomb scenario, you're also assuming that you can get truthful information from coercive interrogation, and that's not been demonstrated anywhere. So, you know, you're giving up all your moral authority for nothing, essentially. And, and I 
second Bob's completely. You know, you're saying these are really violent guys, but there's no evidence against them. Well, if there's no evidence against them, they're probably not really violent guys. And, and having seen the impact of the 13 people who were um, interrogated under the five methods in Northern Ireland, some of them died young, um, a number of them are still suffering from mental illness, and they were totally innocent people who were subject to those techniques. It's damnable. It shouldn't be justified in, in, in a democratic society. I have time for one more question here along the wall, and I apologize to those of you who did not get a chance to ask a question, but hopefully you will later. And please make it very quick. Uh, yes, I'm Russell King. I'll direct this question to uh, Mr. Harper. And, um, well, President Nixon decided he would, would, when he was a former president, not to criticize any sitting or, or upcoming president because he knew the job was difficult. Unfortunately, I'll probably have to give my apologies to Mr. Obama and Mr. Bush and, and all of you, my colleagues here. But um, a lot of people uh, act as though terrorists are non-state actors, but I, I, I like to consider they might have handlers and work for a, a succession of uh, spy organizations. But the Russian Federation has much more developed spy agencies in Afghanistan, and I believe they also have agitation and propaganda agents, agitprop, that can s stimulate conflict between ethnic groups and religions, and also Rose Boron Export, the, the uh, arms dealer of Russia, provides a lot of weapons for so-called Islamic organizations, and also if you consider the motive, as Che Guevara said, we create many Vietnams, uh, when the cat's away, the mice will play. We, we forced all these assets into Central Asia. At the same time, now Cuba, the tyrants in Cuba are, sir, are, there, are I'm sorry. What's your question, sir? My question is, what specifically do you, would you want Congress to do uh, in response to the fact that Barack Obama, he has communist connections, Frank Marshall Davis... Okay. okay. All right. Well, we're out of time. Ready to be president uh, right now. What do you suggest? Do you, would you suggest they uh, find, uh, verify his citizenship and take any other uh, efforts to make sure Russia does not push us around? Thank you. I, I think the preface to your question is a great setup for the panel that we'll have on al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. So I, I thank you for the introduction of that panel. Um, all right. Thanks to all of our – hey, how did I do that? Thanks to all of our panelists. Uh, we will take a short 15-minute break. Uh, I will remind you, I said this at the outset, if you don't need to take a break, you might not want to take a break because there will be other people with their eyes on your seats. Uh, please uh, be back in your seats at 1045 so we can start the next panel promptly at 1045. Thank you all very much.